Good afternoon, folks. Uh, Dr. Ed Williams here. As you know, I'm passionate about the business of aesthetic medicine as well as mentoring those who are serious about getting to the next level in business and in life. And uh, I put this together, this podcast series, a couple of years ago, and it's really taken off. And what I do is I share the many lessons that I've learned as an entrepreneur, small business owner. I've also written a book called The White Coat Entrepreneur, where I kind of tell all um, essentially relevant to any professional, professional, not really just surgeons, but anyone trying to make it in business. Um, you can check out my website at dredwinwilliams.com. And today's topic is uh, I'm, I'm having a guest speaker on. It's uh, Dr. Mike Nyack. I don't think he needs much of an introduction. Um, he's had incredible success and went out on his own. And I want to just hear his story uh, a lot of people really struggle for years to get going. Not that there's any short to, shortcut to a 20-year uh, uh, success, right? Right, Mike? <laughs> 20 years will do it. 20 years will do it. Um, but no, Mike has had a, an incredible amount of su uh, success. I've, I've followed his career. I admired him from day one for taking for his uh, interest in, in very genuine and honest teaching. And I mean that because I, I hear you speak at the meetings. Um, you talk about your struggles, you talk about your failures. And I remember, you know, being invited uh, to the anatomic course that you did at St. Louis. And, um, you know, a lot of people are trying for, for a shortcut in what we do. And, uh, you know, you always did the hard work, but, um, so welcome and thanks for joining, uh, Mike. Mike's in St. Louis. I, I think, like I said, I don't think he needs much of an introduction, uh, to this crowd, but, um, so tell me about your family. I see your family on Instagram. I know you're proud. Proud dad. Yeah, well, first off, thank you for such a kind introduction. It was uh, hyperbole for sure, but I appreciate it. Um, I have, uh, I am very proud. So I'm proud dad, proud husband. I have uh, Avani is my wife of 22 years now. That's not true. Hold on a second. 1999. Yeah, 22 years yeah, almost. 22. That's August. Um, and uh, I have an 18 year old son, Dave, who just graduated. Um, high school and he's headed off to Georgetown in the fall. So we're excited for him. And I have an almost 16 year old son, 16 year old daughter, Mira, who is a uh, rising sophomore in high school and uh, into all the things, tennis and baking and driving, especially right now. And uh, they're both I have two amazing kids. So I'm really, I'm really fortunate. Yeah. Any, any of them you think want to be a doctor? Dave's acting like he does. I think he might, he might want to be, um, I, I think he needs to also see what being a real doctor is like. I mean, I kind of, we kind of kid ourselves, you know, say, oh, we're not really, I know we really are doctors, we really are surgeons, but we're in the special, really just, you know, uh, we're in just the most amazing, just magical piece of medicine. So I want to make sure that he understands what the rest of medicine is also like, you know, and I think he does, but we're going to see if he can get some experiences this summer to, uh, to get a flavor for some of the other pieces of medicine and see if he's uh, interested yeah. in those as well. Yeah, you know, Mike, my my, uh, my daughter just uh, she's just finishing her ophthalmology training. When she was sixteen, she told us she wanted to be a doctor. And um, do you know, until she, until last year, I never let her see me doing cosmetic surgery because I wanted her from from day one to know what real medicine was. And I used to, you know, she used to come and scrubbing and trauma at the med center. But I was shocked, and you know, what she said to me which uh, made warmed my heart. She said, you know, you always seem like you love what you do. And when I tried to talk her out of it and she said, um, 
and you know, you've never missed any of my basketball games or any of my stuff. So it can't be, you know, because I wanted to make her realize how difficult it's, it's a long haul. I mean, I, I look at my daughter graduating. I look at my fellow finish, finishing this year and it's, um, it's a long, it's a long grind. Um, but I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing as you were just saying, you know, it's a pretty special uh, field and it's funny how it all evolves. I'm sure your career now is different than you envisioned it years ago, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, you yeah. know, one thing you said about can't think of anything you'd rather be doing. I think, I think you and I are both very fortunate in that um, we landed exactly where we were meant to be and in, in so many different axes, you know, in the, in the medicine and what part of medicine, what part of the country, what time in, history i mean it's we landed in i feel like i was meant to do exactly this in this city at this time yeah. you know surrounded by the people i'm with I, it's so i'm so fortunate i feel the same way you know i remember at the time all my friends are flocking to the sun belt and here and there and they're why would you go to albany new york and you probably hear the same thing but you've done you know you get people coming from a distance all the time now so um not doing everything wrong right so, so tell me how'd you, how'd you, you know, I remember, I think you interviewed with me, Jeannie Chung's year, right? You were, you were the same year as yeah. Jeannie. So it was 2003. Yeah, you made a wise you choice. You made a wise choice and you picked Jeannie. So <laughs> Jeannie was my co-resident <laughs> yeah, and uh, rem- Jeannie and I are still good friends. Yeah. So where, where did you, before Mass Ioneer, where were you, um, where'd you do your undergrad, your medical school? Uh, Yale undergrad. Washington University in St. Louis Medical School. Okay. And then Mass Ioneer for fellowship. And then I, I was at, I think, you know, I was at the Glasgow Fellowship. I think you came down for a day or two. Yes. Uh, or no, I think you sent, you sent Sam down for a day or two for a little bit of cross pollination for fat transfer. I actually sent Jeannie down. Do you was remember it Jeannie? that? Jeannie? Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, she, it was. It was so, Jeannie. That's right. So, so I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story. She came. This is real quick. So she said to me, she wanted to do this. And, and I heard my, Mark Glasgow speak a couple of times. I'm like, you know what? I trust Mark. And he was showing some results. I think he had a result with his wife. So Jeannie said, you know, I think we should do this. And I said, okay, fine. Pick a day when I'm out of town. So she went down and she came back. She said, we need to do it. She's, she's telling me how much it's going to cost, the expensive. I said, no, Jeannie, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, I'll give you a budget. I'll give you a budget of 1500 bucks. So she, she goes and she finds a centrifuge online and she does all this. She comes back. She goes, Dr. Williams, I have all the equipment. She goes, and I got everything at like $700. She goes, you know what that means? She goes, we might, you know, we have more money to spend. I said, no, Jeannie, it means you came in under budget. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so how did you, where's, where's your family uh, now? I mean, how did you end up in St. Louis? Well, that, you, you hit the nail on the head. So my family is in this area. My wife's family is in this area. So yeah, which is uh, huge. my father-in-law passed. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Just, it's my father-in-law huge to passed have your away, but. Yeah, exactly. So my father-in-law passed away a couple of years ago, but my mother-in-law still lives in uh, Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is about 100 miles from here in one direction. And both my parents are in Effingham, Illinois, which is um, actually my mom's here in St. Louis now, but my dad's in Effingham. So that's another 100 miles in a different direction. So my kids saw all of their grandparents all of the time. They yeah. they didn't go a month without seeing at least three of their four grandparents. Yeah. And so the only other place we could have opened, we could have opened in Indianapolis and been similarly about an hour and a half from all the grandparents. Um, but I knew St. Louis well because I went to medical school here and Avni knew it well because she was practicing law here when we met. 
And so uh, we already knew the town. We liked it. And it was the closest city to both of our hometowns that could support a practice like this one. And it's been a great city for us. No, it's been terrific for you. I mean, and by the way, you know, when you went out, there were like, what, six or seven facial plastic surgeons in Indianapolis. I mean, totally underserved area, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or in St. Louis, you mean? Yeah, for sure. And it's still, it's, I still feel like this market right now that we're in, I, I, it's tough, I know, to start a practice, but I feel like the young people right now starting could not be starting in a better place. I feel like the, especially if you're an actual surgeon, you know, I, I think if you're an actual surgeon, not just a pusher of drugs or pusher of fillers through a needle. Like if you actually know how to operate right now, this is a golden moment. I couldn't be any better. And so St. Louis right now, I still think has, I, I still don't think we're saturated because there's so many, so much demand for actual surgery right now. Yeah. No, what I was saying, and I agree. And what I was saying, I agree with you too, because I think that I tell our fellows that all the time. I say, you go, you guys don't realize what kind of training you have, because if you can operate and you can do all the other stuff, it is hard to just break in doing Botox, but the, but the market does expand. But it's what I find is that, that people who don't have, if they're not pushing themselves to do surgery and be active with surgery, they start to contract their skills and then it end up, you know, losing ground. And I think it's a slippery slope because, uh, um, so tell me how you got involved with uh, your anatomic dissection course. Cause I, I want to share some thoughts with you as to why I think that's so important. But what, what was it that piqued your interest with that? And how did you get started with that? And, and when did you end doing and stop doing it? Well, so um, I'm still doing it, actually. So um, I was on staff at St. Louis University. I was full-time staff for two years. And when I joined their faculty, they had already done four or five years of a blepharoplasty course. Um, John Holds, who is one of my best friends here in town still, mm-hmm. and a phenomenal like he gets the lifetime achievement awards from ace opera's kind of kind of phenomenal uh oculoplastic surgeon had started a uh oculoplastic surgery course they did it a couple times a year for five or six years before i joined faculty and uh the first year i was there i uh, uh was kind of a helper for them and they were nice enough to invite me in and i approached the lab director and said you know you guys need a you need a lower face course you know, and I can set you up with the lower face course. And so that was 2004 or five, something like that. Um, and since then we have done, I've become a bigger part of the eyelid course and uh, the lower face course has grown. And we've done two to three anatomical dissection courses per year since 2005. I mean, just only the COVID year was our bad year. We've, we haven't, we've reopened back up. We have a course coming up in June as an eyelid course and September is my aging face course. And, uh, the aging face one has grown, especially because it, it ends up being two days of didactic and cadaver work followed by a third day, which is live surgery in my office. So mm-hmm. it's actually kind of expanded a little bit further. Yeah. Um, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I, I, I beat it into our fellows. Do you think that's helped you, helped you as a surgeon? <laughs> Tremendously. I mean, yeah. you know, I was thinking um, the other day between, again, those three courses, that's about six days a year, just in St. Louis that I'm, in, I'm, yeah. I'm with cadavers, six days a year, mm-hmm. just for those three courses. And then I usually help with, let's say, the Duke course. That's another couple days a year, maybe eight days a year now or up to um, eight days a year times 15 years. It's 120 days. I've spent four months in the cadaver lab yeah. um, after finishing fellowship. 
Yeah. And that's a privilege. I mean, it's a real yeah, privilege. It's an, it's an absolute privilege. And what I, I haven't spent that much time, but we have fresh cadavers in our cadaver lab and uh, I have access to them. And I usually go over one or two days a year with my fellow. And, you know, I, first of all, I had really good training. I had really good training to high plastic surgeons. And, um, I, I was never, I've never, even to this day, uh, if I have a complication, you know, I, I take it, they take the other part, put it back together. And the same thing when I first started do, doing, you know, deep plane, as you know, a lot of people are saying they're doing deep plane lifts and they're really not doing a true deep plane. They're not going deep to platysma, but uh, whether it's, you know, taking out a gland or doing whatever it is. I had a patient uh, a couple of years ago, came with a big lipoma, deep to platysma midway and just not a problem. But I, I dare say that Without my time in the cadaver lab, I would not have had the guts to do this stuff um, just because you get to know the anatomy so well and you're so comfortable with it. But I, I wanted to, to, to ask you that question because I tell my fellows, please you know, stay hooked in with the university if you want to. Because this is what, you know, think about this, right? If you're like, say, you're doing a sub-smash lift and you, you go to a meeting and you hear someone speak like you, and it's got tons of experience with this. And you say, you know, you're not just going to go home and whip that out on somebody. Because you, you got to execute on both sides, and you got to execute well. So I, I, did, yeah. I knew that I knew the answer to that question, but I think that uh, having access to a cadaver lab is is probably been uh, has been very helpful for me. And I and I'm I'm sure I knew you would say that. Uh, so you're still no, running that sure. course. I mean, I was very honored yeah. when you you know asked me to come, but uh, uh, but I didn't know you were still is still running the course. That's awesome. Yeah, no, we're still we're still going. It's it's a uh, it's been it's evolved a little bit it's, it's a good course um yeah you know just to dovetail on what you said the other two things the, the I, th I think cadaver labs being having access to a cadaver is, is a real privilege i think the other thing that i didn't appreciate as much when i when i interviewed at your office ed i probably visited you and another nine or ten potential fellowship directors for a day each and got to watch them operate, you know, and see see a little bit of how their building was set up and see what their flow of the day was like and everything. And I would pay $10,000 to do that again right now. Oh, I know. The, the privilege of watching experienced people for a day, watching them, not even watching the technique you meant to go watch, just being around them and seeing it all work and what they do intuitively and what their staff does intuitively that's a real privilege too. Watching someone in a in an environment where they're doing what they're doing and doing it well, I mean that's that, that I think that's we don't that, you know they say youth is wasted on the young. I also think yeah. sometimes the experiences are wasted. You know, like you don't know what you're getting. When, like right. I, I visited the best of the best for a day at a time for about you know over over the span of two months, and uh, I mean I appreciated it, but I didn't appreciate it as much as I would right now. I agree. Yeah. My my son-in-law just you know, finished the, the the interview. They actually just matched with Phil Miller, which I'm excited for. But um, but he, I said to him when he said, I said, Dan, just just take it all in. Learn, you know, be a sponge. You know, when you yeah. leave, write notes, write down notes because you're going to forget all this stuff. But uh, I I would die to have that opportunity again. Most of us, because you know, between family and all the other obligations, we can't just check out a life for a couple of weeks and go visit. But that um, was an awesome experience, and I. I'm sure every fellow, anyone going through the fellowship, probably same thing as you said. They just don't, they don't realize what an amazing experience it is, right? Yeah, I mean, we're we're all in like sizing up the fellowship mode, and you know, yeah. you think you know everything, whatever, and you're you're looking for big picture stuff, and really, what you're missing is all the elegance, the the you know, decades of 
refinement that that are just happening in front of you you know and i would i would just love to go do that again just see what yeah. i thought you know well that's why when i see you speaking at a meeting i go listen because i know you're you know everything you say is just there every one of those is pearls you gave a talk uh, i think it was at the vegas meeting on, on just like little pearls it was awesome um it was awesome but uh so let me ask you i mean you, i know you you know you left academics after two years uh, was that difficult it was it you know it was really funny i uh my my chairman was actually one of my old uh, attendings from the Mass Pioneer. Was the chairman at St. Louis University. That's why I joined that program. I could have joined either program here in town. I joined that one. Um, and he was a. He's still. He's actually back at Mass Pioneer. He's he's the head and neck chair there now. Um, I loved him. I loved the department. I did not love the rigidity of being. And this is it's a necessary thing when you're in a big organism like a university medical center you can't make turns on a dime and you can't, you know, change things at will. And you can't, you know, it really, there's so many layers of, of uh, hierarchy there. So I, you know, for instance, I tried to work, I, I, I was nobody and I wanted to get maybe some competitive advantages by say having evening office hours, you know, so maybe seven o'clock a couple of days a week or, um, you know, Saturday mornings, eight to noon, you know, a couple months, a couple of weeks a month. When I was on salary, it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other, you know, but it was to get right. some of these working professionals an opportunity to come see me when, you know, maybe the guys that are more established, they won't see him after hours. They won't see him on a Saturday, you know. I couldn't get the university to provide me with um, secretarial help, medical assistant right. help, or, um, you know, the help that I did have even during the week was often terrible, but we couldn't separate from them because of all the layers involved and, you know, so... I left out of just frustration, honestly. It wasn't like an economic thing. It was, uh, I yeah. was never, I couldn't get any block time. You know, if I, if I managed to get a procedure or a, pa a patient commit to a procedure, let's do this. I couldn't commit to them more than a few days ahead of time because I had no block time. Like I couldn't tell them, okay, six weeks from now on a Tuesday, you got it. No block yeah. time, you know? Yeah. So I just, I ended up leaving because I knew I was never going to develop if I didn't have some control and some, uh, customer service. I mean, a lot of it's customer service that I couldn't provide, you know, like I said, can't schedule you, can't do it after hours. I can't give you a good MA, good front desk person. So it was, it wasn't as, it wasn't that difficult because it, it was, yeah. it was, I was getting out of a situation that wasn't, despite the chairman being awesome and wanting to help, it wasn't a situation that the university could back me up on. Yeah. No, I, I'm not going to tell you my story just because it's. It, I want to talk about you, but um, I did a similar thing. I, I I started out in private practice, but I still had you know had a, a part time situation at the university and just uh, long term it you know. But I still think it's it's good part of the it can be a good part of the plan. I have you know one of my former fellows, uh, Zia Katrives at University of Kentucky. But I think he's there four or five years there. He's crushing it. Um, but he's he's gained a tremendous tremendous amount of experience, and you know ultimately I, I know he'll end up be getting frustrated and, and and leaving. How did you you know how did you do it you know financially and all that? It's this is the stuff that scares scares the heck out of people. And I talk to young folks. I say you know until I want to hear your thoughts. I say but if you're going to do it, put a timeline on it: two years, five years, and then and then do it because next thing you know, boom, ten years goes by and you got kids and you're looking at college and. You know, no one wants to make those scary financial moves at that point. So, so you know, what what did that look like, and how did you how did you you know the very early early days? How did you start? Yeah. So, um, one of the things you said is critical. Is I I um, 
decided it was then or I wasn't going to have the confidence to do it later. So they said leaving wasn't that hard because I was frustrated. But I also knew if I waited until my kids were 16, 17 years old, I wouldn't have the flexibility. You know, one of the things I thought, and it's really true, you know, at that point when I left, I was 32, no, 34. Um, if everything blew up in my face and I had to go take a group practice job or an academic job or whatever, you know, I did it for a year or two and nothing worked and I was in debt again, I would have been fine. You know, it, it would have been like, it would have been like some of the people that were in fellowship till they were 36, you know, and then they get out and they're in deep debt and they start, they start their life then. So I think there is some um, freedom in, in trying something like that early on because, you know, the worst that happens is you're another couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. What's another right. couple hundred thousand? And, uh, and you have the entire rest of your life to, to catch back up. So I think it's a lot harder, as you said, when your family obligations are, yeah. are more weighty. Um, we took a home equity loan. My, so my wife, um, Avenue was a big part of when we started. Um, when I was on staff at SLU, um, she is an attorney by training, but she did not like practicing law. And when our son was born, she stayed home to raise him. Um, but then when I joined staff at SLU, she actually worked there clerical. She was, she was actually one of my helpers. She was on salary there at SLU on hourly there at SLU. Um, and did, um, some answering phones and some, you know, office kind of stuff. And so she got a little feel for a big, a big understanding of what that office structure was like. Um, and then when I started, it was me and her, uh, one receptionist and one kind of medical assistant person. And so I started, I think you have to start very lean and very, um, mm -hmm. it's almost like, you know, your autoclave and fat trans, not autoclave, your centrifuge fat transfer equipment. You know, you have a finite amount of money, you know, and so you start as small as you can. I started in a 2000 square foot place, um, with one unpaid employee, which was my wife, and then two paid employees, which was a receptionist and a medical assistant. Yeah. And so you've been at this, what, 18, 19 years? Uh, private practice for 15 16. years. 15, 16. Uh, 15 private and, and uh, 17 total. Yeah. Was it, yeah. Do, do you think it was part of your plan when you joined the university someday, or was it just you had your frustration? Because I hear people go five, six, seven, eight years before they jump ship. Was it part of your plan? Yeah. It wasn't, and I, I, I will say at some point probably, but it ended, it ended up happening a lot faster because of the frustration part of it. Like I, I, I say this, and I think it was true. If I had been relatively content as far as just even developing a surgical practice, I probably would have stayed six, seven years and still left as you, as you said. But um, this is, this is something, this, this is true. I have my little, the year I left St. Louis University, I got clinical professor of the year. Like it was awkward. I, I, w I was given that award on my way out the door. Um, and I, that, that little plaque, it's from, it's from 2006. It's, it's still prominently displayed in my private office. So it's a 15 year old, meaningless, you know, five by seven inch plaque. Well, it wasn't but you I though. It up there it rem yeah. Well, but it reminds me of why I left, you know, so like my, your, your business is way more mature than mine, but um, even mine is like a little academic department. You know, we have, we have a group of paraprofessionals like the audiologists, you know, we have mid-levels like nurse practitioner kind of stuff. We have, you know, the operating room team, the reception, you know, the kind of clerical people. So it's like a little academic department in some ways, you know, and they train each other down 
almost like a group of residents might train each other down or senior to junior nurses might train each other down. And so I keep that up there um, because I think it makes me a better employer. You know, I, I, I left over things where I felt like I was, I, I didn't leave over money. I left over, they were so afraid I was going to get busy and leave that they didn't let me get busy. You know, I, I, everything I wanted, the answer was no, we can't do that. You know, oh, we can't, the, no matter what I wanted to do, the answer was, that's just not how it is. We can't make that happen. You know, we can't provide you with what you need. And so that little thing up there, I, I, I tell my staff this too. I mean, that, that's up there as kind of a reminder to me to be, the answer is generally yes, unless it really has to be no. You know, so if you're going to ask me, if you're going to ask me for something, the answer is, unless it's absolutely got to be no, I'm going to try to find a way to make it yes. When an employee says, you know, I think I'd be better off in this other job title. Generally, they have a good reason for it, you know, or if, if they're asking for some piece of equipment that I'm like, you really need that? Well, they think they do, you know, and it's, and it's, and it can be frustrating when every, every ask to do a better job is no. And so that's like my little visual cue about, um, I don't want to drive my best people away by frustrating them. And so that, yeah. that literally sits up there in my, my office. Yeah. So. Is Avani still pretty involved with you, with the business? She is, and she's in a, everything that she used to do has, and this is how I think that natural history of all these practices, her one job split off into four or five different jobs, um, and then each of those is split out into four or five different mm-hmm. people, you know, so like, she used to answer the phones and be a medical assistant, so, you know, now we have whatever, 12 receptionists and eight medical assistants, right? Um, so her job now is more like business development. So she doesn't like come into the office every day or whatever, but she is an incredibly important sounding board and she'll, she'll come in and say something just off the cuff. And I'll be like, that is brilliant. You know? So she, she understands the business well, but she, she has, she's never been the office manager. She's had never had a desire to, to be that person. Um, But she's always been a very good um, idea and development and, uh, look at it from the consumer spec consumer perspective kind of person, which I think is really helpful. So she's, she's still involved, but not in a day-to-day sense. Yeah. It's quite, it's been, you know, quite the journey that you, you went on what 15, 16 years, how many employees do you have now? About 50. Yeah. That's, that's a big number, you know, and until people, it's a big number, you know, and I remember you calling me when, when COVID hit, Right. And yeah. I was so naive. I said, I'm not laying anyone off. And then I talked to my accountant. He said, um, if, if you don't furlough people, Ed, you're not going to have you're not going to have cash to bring people back. And that's when yeah. it hit me. You know, and he said, um, he said, look, uh, you know, this is what the government set up to make this happen. You have to furlough people. And, you know, we ended up doing the same thing. I'm I feel blessed that uh, there's only two people that didn't come back and both of them were people we didn't want to come back. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were struggling in their position. Every single person came back. And uh, I know you're a good boss because I, I know the kind of culture that you have there. So you're obviously doing something right. What, you know, in the, in the last maybe 10 years, because I went through different phases of learning as, as a, you know, we, we are taught business, right? Right. I, I wasn't. Not at all. I, you know, I learned a lot from you. I have to say, Ed, you were you. You've always been. This is the podcast. Maybe in the last few years, but but um, I mean, right from the very beginning, when I'd see you at meetings, I'd go to the the office administrator business half and watch you talk more than you go to the surgical part. You know, you, yeah. you've always been very good about the 
I know it, it, you do a lot of reading. It's not all intuitive, but you do have a lot of intuitive sense and then, you know, picked up. So I, I learned a lot from you, but you're right. Formally, we get no business training at all. No. So I've gone through different, and again, I, I work at it. Um, I work at it because I love it. Um, you know, and that's one thing if I can pass on now to, to the younger people, because we don't really you know get it anywhere formally, but, um, but some people are just not interested and some people aren't coachable. Right. Uh, so, but we go through phases and every few years I, I have a lesson that just kicks me right in the teeth. What, you know, what in the last 10 years, what, what's like one of the biggest lessons you learned in, in, in running a business, forget medicine from there, you know, cause you, you, what you have is still a business. I don't care how you look at it. We have an obligation to have uh, high integrity to our patients and never do anything that's not in their best interest. Right. That's part of Hippocratic oath. But what, what business lesson is the biggest business lesson that you've learned on the last you know, 10 years, or maybe, you know, if you can't think of the last 10 years, but maybe before that. Um, giving up as much as I can possibly give up off my plate to other people's plates in a structured way, understanding that it's not going to happen exactly the way I would do it if I were to keep it on my plate and do it myself. Mm-hmm. And accepting that um, there's going to be some, I wouldn't even call them errors, just frustrations and awkwardnesses created by that. But that is the cost of freeing yourself and becoming efficient. And yep. so giving giving those things up, trusting they're going to get done, and then um, you can't have it all. You can't have it exactly the way you want it. And at the same time, have freedom to, to do bigger things. The other, if I give you part two, morning stand up. That's that's the other one. Morning stand up is, is is you've probably read the Art of Scrum. Have you read the Art of Scrum? I didn't, but I read Rockefeller Habits, which is basically your morning huddle. Yeah, it's the same thing. So um, Scrum is so what like is so development. Say, yeah. So tell me just you know briefly without getting it, but you know what is. Because I have a different version of, I want to hear your version of. So, um, and, uh, the basic concept of this is an organizational structure where it's not even an organizational structure; it's a task management structure where you have every, you have a personal like your hot list. This is what I'm really focused on, and then you have kind of a secondary list, like a back burner list. And um, every morning. I meet with my office manager and my office administrator, which sounds the same, but they're different. My office manager is HR, payroll, benefits, interpersonal relationships, you know, putting out fires, keeping people happy. She is the human capital manager. And then I have my office administrator. She is the project person. I have this idea, make it happen. You know, um, she's my liaison to the website people. She's my liaison to the voice over IP phone people, to the data management people, to the online store, online store, web, online shopping. So she's the get things done person. And then the other one's the take care of my employees person. So those are my two halves, my management team. And so each of those people has a list. They have their active list and they have their, we call it their back burner list, their secondary list. And this is kind of from that scrum management concept. So every morning, while my patient is getting um, going under, going to sed- getting sedated, getting prepped, draped, localized, whatever, I will have between 
20 and 40 minutes of time after I finish marking the patient, but it's not time to cut yet. So there's 20 to 40 minutes right there, first thing in the morning, every morning. And the three of us meet for that window. And it, we meet until we either run out of topics or until it's time for me to cut. But that's a, it's a predictable meeting. And we go through the office administrator's list. You know, okay, let's see your hot list. And we go point by point by point. And she gives me updates on what each of those points are. And I ask me questions and I tell her which direction I'd like her to take any given task on that list. Uh, and we have these, these, are just, these are lists we share on our phone so I can add to it. Or during the daytime, I think something I'll throw it on her list and it'll, it'll come up tomorrow. So that way we're not sending emails and responding to emails and did you get it, did you not get it? Um, and then we go to the office manager and we do her list. So we run the two lists every morning. And by the time I then go to the operating room, each of them has filled me in on what happened since our last morning meeting, your huddle or whatever you want to call it. So I've heard their updates from the last 24 hours and I've given them direction for the next 24 hours. And the best part and is then you I don't have conversation during the day, right? You don't get correct. the interruptions during the day. And then the email chains are not like forever and ever where no one reads them. They skim it and they get one word answers back and you're trying to get tone and whatever. In one 20 to 40 minute exchange, they usually end up being about 20 minutes. We usually run out of topics by 20 minutes or the uh, patient's ready to cut to 20 minutes. Yeah. I've been filled on everything I need to know since the last time we met. And I've given them direction and everything they need to do until the next time we meet because we meet every morning. Yep. And then And then it goes back to that get out of their way, let them do it the way they're going to do it. Um, there's a hierarchy, kind of a management tree that they work through. So, I mean, my office manager can't manage 50 people independently by herself any more than I can directly manage 50 people. So she has to have a structure underneath her. And uh, that has been incredibly useful in terms of, I get to then be the doctor all day, you know, so I'm, I'm done with my admin stuff first thing in the morning. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to share what I do, but it's something similar because you have to be, something similar. you know, people, people used to go, I'd be at the scrub sink and I'd say, stop, stop, please. I'm being a technician right now. You know, you have to, you have to segregate that because otherwise you get, and, and it's not fair to your patients, right? You're getting ready no. to operate. You're being interrupted with some nonsense. Um, um, but you also want to be there. What, um, what are the biggest things that kind of keep you up now at night? I mean, we all, listen, I don't mean keep you up like loose sleep. I mean, you're preoccupied like I'm preoccupied because whether you like it or not, you're an entrepreneur. You're always trying to get to that next level. What are, what are the things that you're thinking about like the next couple of years that you need to work on? It's a constant tension between, oh, my God, we're too busy. We need more people. We need more space. And I don't want to outgrow my situation. So when you have a lean time or a weird time or it's hyperinflation or Forget about COVID. COVID's a one-off. I'm talking about just normal economic cycle kind of stuff. Or I've seen three recessions. Right. I've seen two of them. Right. So um, it's the constant tension between those two things is, you know, are we, do we need to add? I don't want to add. Um, that's one. Um, another is I want driven employees, um, but I don't want them internally competitive in a, in an unhealthy way. Um, I don't how ever do you, want them you, feeling like, and how do you do that? I mean, to me, you know, I, I've read all kinds of things on building culture and, and, and it finally, I feel like I understand it a lot better than I did back then. And I, and I realized how important you, know, you can't win championships with a superstar. You need, you need a team. What do you, what do you do? I mean, I have a lot of things that I do. What, what do you do to build a team and to, again, foster 
teamwork, but not competitive within competitiveness within. A lot of it's the right person. I mean, there's some people that are going to be toxically competitive or toxically lazy, and there's no amount of coaching that's going to make them an ideal fit. Right. And so, um, I, 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 I know this about myself. I'm a terrible hirer. I don't hire anybody. I'm not involved in the hiring process. I've, I've accepted that. I don't, I don't know what, what makes a good employee. So my office manager and my office administrator are the first line, um, of kind of sorting through people. And then when they pick someone, a lot of offices do this, they'll take that, they'll take their two or three best candidates and run them through the department that they're going to be a piece of and kind of get a sense of it. Um, that has really helped a lot to get me out of the process because I'm, I'm a sucker. I'll be like, oh, she's great. You know, and they end up not nice being family. Great. They come from a nice part of town. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. It writes a good, writes a good cover letter, very differential, you know. Um, and then if, and then if they're really, it, it, if they don't work out, great when you know it's, it's easier said than done but you know separating earlier rather than dragging it on um we have been very fortunate the other thing i'll say is hiring from our direct we as much as we can i'm sure you do this too when we start to hire it's usually a recommendation by an existing employee you know there we have social media is crazy and interesting and one of the one of the not so secret things about it is we're not just out there educating people which is fun and trying to get patients which is important we're out there programming people that are going to one day work for us you know and so um a lot of these people that are friends of our existing or acquaintances of our existing employees they're just dying to come work with their friend at our place because they feel like it's a good situation and so we get a everyone, personal referral. You know? Everyone wants to work for a hot company, right? I mean, it took us years right. to get where we feel like we're a hot company, but we've had people where they say, I just wanted to get my foot in the door here. Yeah. You know, working for, you know, entry level just, and then they end up, yeah. you know, actually, you know, they're a manager somewhere doing something, you know, in our office. So, yeah. And so that's, that's the other thing too, is, is um, trying to be that place where people want to be, yeah. you know, but then you, but I, I I'm just really fortunate the right people make the environment great. And one or two, one of my very first employees actually um, became toxic six or seven years into her employee. Yep. And had before. Um, I had to let her go. I was, I was in tears. One of the hardest things yeah. I ever had to do. Yeah. Um, but it had to be done because she let me was guess. ruining everything. Let me get, let me guess. Okay. When, so I gave a little talk at Vegas. It was, you know, the top lessons I've learned in the last 29 years. And one of them is never, ever, ever let one person become indispensable. You know, yeah. they, where they become they, the ones that hold their stuff and they don't share. And all of a sudden, you know, they're, it's, it's, uh, so what we do is we start making sure we make sure everyone's cross trained. Um, you know, there are, let's face it, there are some kiki people, but once they get to that point, they've really proven themselves. You know, you did say one thing that that uh, that I, I, I my one liner that to, to back up with your lesson learned. What I say is, if there's as far as moving up to the next level, if there's something that somebody can do eighty percent as well as I can do it, it's time to get off my plate. And I remember when I first stopped injecting patients. Gosh, it's got to be like fifteen years ago. I had one of my patient care coordinators come to me and say, Dr. Williams, what are we going to tell Mrs. Boyd? I mean, you, she said, 
you know, only you, only you can inject her with Botox. And they said, tell her Dr. Williams doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, And it's a hard thing for us to do, right? To just give up stuff. It's really hard, but you're never going to get to another level in your leadership and high level stuff that you're doing surgically. If you, if you continue to give way to that, right? Mm -hmm. that, so I'll tell you, that is one of the hard things is, is feeling like you're abandoning the people that got you here. Yep. You know, like that is actually, that is actually hard. And it's not like, I'm just not like patting myself on the back. It's like, it's actually, it feels, it feels dirty to say. No, yeah, it, feels very, it feels very dirty. I have, you know, patient people I've known for years and all of a sudden a friend of the family and they got a skin cancer. And I, I, you know, I tell them, I, I don't, I don't do that anymore. My, my junior guy does it. And you feel like you're abandoning him. Uh, but, uh, but the reality is you, you, there's a point where you've, I don't know, want to call pay or do whatever, but there's a point where you're never going to get to that next level of what you're doing. If you allow, if you say yes, right. You have to get things off your plate. And that's a tough, yeah. that's a I tough like lesson for any entrepreneur. Yeah. I like how you phrase that. If there's some, if it can be done 80% as well, give it away. That's, that's what I was trying to say when I said, you know, all yeah, I just I put it, I, I just gave you my one liner because that's basically what you're saying. I love it. But it's a, it's a yeah, guideline. Get rid of it. No, it's not going to be exactly right, but it's yeah. better that someone else does it even at that stage. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I only want to ask you one or two more questions because I've taken a lot of your time. But one thing I wanted to ask you is that because I'm interested, how um, do you have any partners, associates? I don't. I've thought about it, um, and eventually it'll, it, the time will come where I probably need to. This is a succession kind of situation. What about what about but a plastic surgeon? What about a plastic uh, might, might, might be a good option. I don't. So I have in town. I have very very good friends. Like one of my one of my absolute best friends is a plastic surgeon in town that I refer things to all the time. And you know we're we're more than collegial. We're very very close, mm -hmm. but we're not business partners. Yeah. Um, so maybe someday. Yeah. You know, so I'm going to share you with because it is, you know, I've I've uh, I've got a plastic shirt and I got two of my former fellows with us, and uh, I think we've done a really good job of keeping that. To, but I want to share with you the caveat to that is because it will dilute your brand, and that's it's it's really hard for everything to be. You'll command higher fees if you're by yourself. Yeah. But then you're, so, but then you're, you know, all those things, I'm just, you know, these are the things I've wrestled with. But the reality is, is I've created what I have. The reason I've been approached so many times with private equity is I'm making myself a little less relevant. But honest to gosh, it's, uh, it beats you up a little bit because you're dealing with all of that. So, I mean, the way I look at it, a partner brings certain advantages. They, it's someone to help cover your overhead. You know, right, I don't need that. that. I have a, I have an army of providers. I right. get someone to help back you up, you know, take your hospital call. I'm lucky enough I don't hospital call anymore. Someone to help help deal with, you know, manage your people when you're out of town. You know, my my people can manage things when, they're, when I'm out of town. And if they really need another doctor, I have several good close doctor friends in town that would take it for me. So the last two reasons from my perspective that I might bring on another person, one is maybe, maybe there might be a profit associated with it. Um, I don't necessarily know it's going to be a lot. I mean, if they're really good, they're going to, they're going to deserve most of what their actual profit center is, you know? So there's not that much vig on a, on a really good person. Um, and then the last is succession planning, you know, and that I think is where I said at some point I may have to consider that, but the, the, and then what are all the negatives? The negatives are, I didn't even think of a diluting uh, reputation does to some degree for sure. 
but just another cook in the kitchen, another, another set of preferences, another, another, this is how I think we should do it. You know, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a megalomaniac. I, it's hard for me to do that. I know it's a, it's a challenge. Um, ultimately you will create more value if you build that into your succession, but it's a, it's a double-edged sword. There's, there's no question. Um, you know, how come Dr. Nyack, uh, you know, you have to spend the same on everybody's marketing budget. You know, all those yeah. kind of things that you have to be fair. If you're going to set the rules, you, um, and that becomes a challenge. So by the way, I can't add a case because that's Dr. Polynesia's day, you know? So, you know, those, those things, but anyway, what, um, you know, you've had incredible success on social media. When did you start doing all of that? What, what was it? And what was it that made you, made you start? Um, so this is an interesting topic and I, I have a different take on it now than if you'd asked me six months ago, um, okay. which um, may be surprising. So I started about five years ago, I would say in earnest. Um, and it was really just see, you know, every time I go to a meeting, these, these uh, consultants at the business side of the meeting would say, Oh, the social media is going to be really big. You know, you're going to, and I, you know, I, I, didn't believe it the first nine times I heard it, that it was really going to matter. Um, but then, you know, it, it did, it did start becoming increasingly big. And, um, yeah, of course, Dr. Miami was huge. And I was actually in his little troop for a little while. We paid a membership yeah. fee to be yeah, in yeah. his feed. And that actually got me a, got me a fair amount of, um, uh, eyeballs early on quickly, which was helpful. Um, but Initially, it was more about um, trying to recruit patients, I kind of felt like. Um, and I had, I've had three and a half social media managers. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is I've had three different people, one of them twice, yeah. be my social media manager. Um, and my last social media manager, I had her for about two years. And we just, we never really saw eye to eye. And like, I feel, I feel like I do good surgery and have good results. And I think that's an advantage that we can play over a lot of other people, you know, instead of showing another lip filler, you know, or, right. or, or, or so some ho-hum thing you're looking and go, what the hell do they do? Right. Or, you know, just be gory or whatever. Like, I think, I think we have one of the advantages that we have, I have a better, um, I have, I have a better story to tell and we should be using that. You know what I mean? That's what, was, what I felt. And was, meanwhile, we're doing the same thing, the same challenge, you know, right. that someone else is doing it just to be goofy. And so um, she ended up leaving four or five months ago, four months ago, maybe um, for a completely different field. You know, and, and that, the other thing, like you can only ascend so far as a social media manager in a practice. Right. That's, that's actually one of the challenges I have. You know, you can only ascend so far in my practice without the right license. And then even within that license, you can only ascend so far. And then it's like you have these people that are driven, but there's nowhere for them to go. And that could be, that's a whole conversation all by itself. But um, so when she ended up leaving for about four months ago, I just said, I'm, I'm just going to do it myself, you know? And um, I, I frankly feel like I had been more effective in, I probably spend two hours a day um, between thinking about something, writing a caption, if it's a video, making a video, editing the video, I probably spend about two hours a day. Um, That's a lot. But, but so far I enjoy it. And yeah. it has been a thousand times more effective. The traction, you know why? stickiness. 
You know why? Person, it's interpersonal. It's because it's you. It's because it's yeah, you. I, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you've read any or listened to any Gary Vaynerchuk stuff. You know, this, uh, yeah, oh, sure. yeah, and then and basically he says you got the content. You know what I mean, we all have the content, but hey, folks. So I'm not really sure where we got cut off in Doctor Nyack's podcast, but we were about to wrap up. But I, I did want to say a few things because I thought there were real, a couple of real pearls that came out at the end of my conversation with him. You know, so. I said to him, you know, you've had a tremendous, and he has, amount of degree of success in the last many years with social media and marketing as far as, um, you know, bringing him patience. And I asked him about that, and he said, you know, my perspective on things is, things have changed the last two years or so. And I was, so, so tell me, you know, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you know, I had... Uh, these positions, you know, marketing manager, someone who was responsible for all my social media. But what I what I learned was, um, and it's you know, what I learned was it was much more impactful. I've made much more progress um, in just the last two years. And and I said, well, why? And he said, because I I kind of took it over myself. Um, because you know. I, a marketing manager, or someone who's doing your social media, it's kind of a dead end street, right? I mean, no one goes to become a mar- go into marketing to be someone's social media person, and that gets uh, old after a while. And so you you have a turnover. It's frustrating for the for the doctor. Um, and so uh, you know, with that with that position, um, he said. And in, in addition, the other problem is there is not. It's not really you. Um, and so he said he spends about two to two and a half hours a day, very deliberate in what he does. And he makes sure it's him and it's himself speaking and his social. And he said he, he plans it all out himself now. And that's been what's been extremely successful. And, you know, we've noticed that in, in our practices as well. The doctors who don't want to share their family life, they don't want to share but themselves are just less effective um you know your patient base and people want to find you interesting and um so i thought that was very interesting because that's been some of the things same things that we learned obviously it's um it's an investment in your time he says he spends two to two and a half hours a day doing this um and it was a real eye-opener for me you know maybe i need to up my game because um um, you know, the content is, according to Gary Vaynerchuk, the content is there. You just have to, you have to document it. Um, and that takes time and that takes your time and that costs money. So that's how I wrapped up with him. He, he talked about his dad being an inspiration. He's 75 years old. He's a urologist. He still does the big cases at the age of 75. Um, and that's kind of someone who inspires him. All righty. So I hope you found this uh, informative and enjoyable. And gosh, I took a lot of pearls out of this as well. Some of them affirm things I already know, but I took a lot of pearls. So thanks again for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, please submit them. I'll get them back to you. I'll answer them on an upcoming podcast. Um, check out my website, DrEdwinWilliams.com. I've got all kinds of tidbits out there information for those who are serious about getting to the next level in aesthetic business and business of the business of medicine. Hope you have a good day.